You are listening to Investing Matters, brought to you in association with London Southeast. This is the show that provides informative, educational, and entertaining content from the world of investing. We do not give advice, so please do your own research. Hello, and welcome to the Investing Matters podcast. My name is Peter Higgins, and today I have the huge privilege and honor of speaking with Saranga Chandra Lake the founder and former CEO of video technology firm Blinks, entrepreneur and general partner of the venture capital firm, Bolton Capital. Hello there, Saranga. How are you today? Really good, thank you. Good to be here. Thank you ever so much for joining me. I feel absolutely blessed to have somebody of your technology expertise on this um, podcast with me. So thank you for joining me. That's very kind of you. <laughs> now, Saranga, you grew up in Manchester, which is not far away from where I was brought up as well. Um, before you were 10 years of age, if, I, if my research is correct, you were writing computer code. What triggered your interest and what did you dream of achieving back then? Yeah, um, it's quite um, simple, really. But my my dad brought a computer home. There was one at his office, at his place of work. Um, and he basically asked them if he could borrow it overnight when it wasn't being used. And he'd bring it home. Uh, and at first, of course, like anyone else, I wanted to play games on it because I'd heard that you could do that. Um, but my dad sort of said, no, that there aren't any games on it and they're expensive. So we're not, I'm not going to buy you one unless you can show me that you can do something useful with it first. Um, so that's basically what got me started on writing code. And at least in those days, honestly, games were not that good. So when I did finally get a game, it wasn't that exciting or that compelling or that engaging. And so I ended up realizing that programming itself was more interesting than the playing of games. Bit different these days. Games have come a long way in the last, you know, 35 years. <laughs> indeed, indeed, they have um, now, you went on to attain your master's in computer science at the University of Cambridge. Looking back at your time at Cambridge, what did you gain most, aside from the MA, from your scholarly environment? Uh, that's a great question. Um, honestly, I think the biggest skill that I gained at Cambridge was just the juggling of everything. Um, so one of the reasons I read computer science was that I enjoyed programming and like software. The other reason I did it was because I knew that I already had done a lot of the work that was required because it had been a hobby for many years by that point. And I knew that that would let me, you know, experience the university and university in general in a broader way. I wasn't going to be sort of locked up in my room having to revise all the time um, and I really used that I mean I did lots and lots of extracurricular things I made lots of friends I tried starting a company while I was there um, and really learning how to juggle all of that at high speed um, you know prioritizing constantly every day every week um, it was it was a great time to do that because it was sort of fun I had a lot of energy to do it um, and really things couldn't go that badly wrong right everything was sort of fairly limited in its downside so it was a great environment and a place to do that. The other big thing, honestly, that that university gave me was just a level of kind of confidence about where I could go and what I could do. Um, I wasn't like a, a shrinking violet before that, but but Cambridge is definitely a place where if you're you know fortunate enough to be able to go, it's the sort of place where you go and you say, well, actually, people have gone on from here and done all kinds of amazing things. So, you know, I shouldn't put any kind of barrier in my mind about what I can do and how far I can go. Um, many people who've been to Cambridge have gone a lot further than I have, but it definitely left the, the door open wide on sort of where you might want to take your career, which is great. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for that reply. I really appreciate it. Now, you spoke of confidence there, Sharanga, an enthusiastic computer science fellow, armed with your master's qualification. 
just readying yourself to take on the world. What is your thinking and thoughts, if you can recall, around the time of the tech boom and bust, which was going on 99, 2000? You're just finishing your master's in 2000 at that time. Yeah, so um, it was really interesting, actually. I mean, I, I when I got into programming, you know, computers were a sort of slightly weird uh, offshoot industry and hobby, very, very unusual thing to be into, uh, which seems crazy now. Um, and then obviously when I was at uni, sort of 97 to 2000, um, it really took off as an industry. And there were people who were my age or maybe just two, three years older, you know, leaving early, dropping out, starting companies, becoming, you know, multimillionaires. And it was just very exciting. It was this beyond just the money and the sort of financial success. It was this idea that these these things that we'd worked on, some of us for many years, were suddenly becoming really relevant to the whole world. Um, and actually that made me really, really um, optimistic and enthusiastic and ambitious about what I could do next. Um, I'd been on a sort of path to go to the city and become a financial analyst. And I had a fantastic offer from a very, very well-known bulge bracket US firm that wanted me to do that. Um, and amazingly, at the last minute, I decided not to sign on for that job and instead joined a software company. Um, and that was very much you know, part of the, the frenzy and the energy of tech at the time. So um, it was a really brilliant time to be sort of studying that subject and to be sort of graduating. It was sort of one of those periods where you felt like anything was possible. Brilliant. It's interesting. You said you you almost joined the finance industry. I find that I didn't I didn't know that. So thank you for sharing that with me. Um, now, after your initial jobs um, in the sector, um, tech wise, you eventually ended up as the U.S. Chief Technology Officer for HP Autonomy, which I find absolutely amazing. You know, after a couple of years, you were doing that. You spent a significant amount of time in California and the Silicon Valley. From your own experience of having worked in both the Silicon Valley and our golden tech triangle of Cambridge, Oxford, and London. What are your thoughts on each of them? And how would you improve both for entrepreneurs and startups? Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, you mentioned it as an aside there, but I, I was really lucky to be able to sort of climb the ranks very quickly at Autonomy. And actually that happened for two reasons. One is um, that it was a very entrepreneurial company, which let you know younger people basically take a risk with their career. But the other reason, which I think is sort of relevant for right now when we're in a bit of a tech slowdown, is that actually sometimes slowdowns can be brilliant for your personal career because there was a dot-com crash shortly after I graduated, which I was hit by as well. I was laid off from my first job. Um, you know, the nice thing was that actually, if you were willing to sort of do anything, you could actually rise very rapidly because a lot of people had left the industry. And I sort of see that same thing right now. People are sort of a bit depressed with where tech jobs are, but actually it could be a great time to lean into it if you're if you're from a personal career point of view. But anyway, that's a different point um, regarding the differences between Silicon Valley or the Bay Area um, and the triangle here in the UK. Um, I think there are lots of similarities. There are more similarities than there are differences. Um, the most important ones being the sheer talent that's available. So there are just a lot of smart, ambitious people um, of all different ages and levels of experience. Um, there's a sort of financial requirement that Silicon Valley has um, that we have a lot more of today in the UK that we didn't have certainly 20 years ago, which is just venture capital investors, angel investors that can really back these companies. Um, and then also there's a need for I would describe it as kind of the broader ecosystem. So not just the founders and the sort of executive teams, but all of the other people that make these companies a success, the lawyers, the bankers, the accountants and everything else, uh, the media people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's just a very, very well-established ecosystem of all of those people in the Bay Area. Um, and when, when I was building my company there and even working for Autonomy there, 
it really was visible. I mean, you know, if you had a problem, there were just always people you could ask and you could ask them very easily. Whereas here in Europe, even today, even in the UK, in the Golden Triangle, it's just a bit harder to find people. And when you do find people, they've probably had a little bit less experience. Doesn't mean they aren't brilliant and they aren't as good in you know fundamentally, but they just haven't been through as much experience. And so that makes it harder or just a bit slower, I think, to build a company in Europe. But the good news is we're catching up fast. And I think, you know, the reality today in Cambridge, for example, is so much better than, you know, 23 years ago when I graduated from Cambridge. Um, just a completely different, you know, night and day reality for founders. Um, we can go further and we should go further, but um, it's got a lot better. The the one big thing that we haven't really fixed in my mind is the um, is the public market situation. Um, so the reality is that the FTSE, um, you know, London Stock Exchange is, is a great exchange for various things, but it really hasn't become a hasn't been a great place for tech companies. It has a few of them. It's always had a few of them. It's never been a really happy destination for most of those companies. Um, and I don't think I think a lot of those companies have always felt they were undervalued by it. Um, I think that's a little bit unfair. I mean, I was a you know London-based public CEO for a while, and I, there were plenty of good things about it. But I I think they're right that you know Nasdaq in particular, but even the New York Stock Exchange are, are great places to be as a public tech company. Um, and that's something we've got to fix somehow because if we don't, then I I worry that the LSE will become less and less relevant over time. Yeah, I've had that discussion with a few technologists and fund managers and you know people that have worked in the ecosystem and it's a recurring problem really and 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 the argument that's been had of late regarding arm um listing where should it list how should it list etc cetera, etc cetera, it all stems from the fact that we allowed it to be sold in the first place you know um which we shouldn't have done and we should have kept our champions technology champions and um and now we're fighting to even try and get them to list here so it's very unfortunate now you mentioned the fact sorry go on saranga no, and I was going to say, even looking at the arm thing, obviously one way of stopping that happening would have been to would have been to have blocked it. Um, the other way of stopping it, which is almost the one I would have preferred, is if if arm had been on a market that fully appreciated its value, then it would have been attractive for arm to stay public, you know. Um, but the reality was that when it came down to that decision, the board said, well, you know, versus this public reality and this exit reality, we're going to do the second. And it's a shame that we're in that position. You know, if you think about it, there are lots of US public companies that could have sold earlier, but they didn't because they were happy being public on NASDAQ or, or the New York Stock Exchange. And they've continued to grow and grow and grow and become more and more relevant and accrue value to that country as a result. Absolutely. I have this recurring um, issue with, with our tech companies. And the fact they're never allowed to grow to their full potential, they get halfway and they're offered a 20, 30% premium. And the board and the other institutional investors go, We'll take that. And it seems very short termist to me, Saranga. I'm not sure if you agree with me or not. Yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, so, you know, today I'm a venture capitalist. Um, I work for a firm called Balderton. We are a um, London-based pan-European venture capital firm. We've been doing it for about 22, 23 years now. I've been there for eight years. Um, and we invest everywhere from seed all the way through to sort of IPO level, um, always in private tech companies. And um, as we are often an early stage investor, um, the model that we pursue, uh, the financial model, is that we will make a number of you know, investments. They're highly risky. Um, many of them will not work out and, and end up going to zero. That's just the nature of highly speculative, um, you know, cutting edge technology. Um, that's OK. Failure is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but we need one or two of those companies to do incredibly well. And that's kind of what allows us to produce overall the returns that our investors expect. 
Um, and so we absolutely want to hold on to our winners. You know, we don't want to sell at 350 or 400 or even a billion dollars. We'd rather hold until they get to 10 or 20 or 30, you know, um, and we have some of those in our portfolio. And, and, and it's because of that that we've been able to be successful as a firm. But you're right. There's a lot of pressure on those companies to sell out earlier. Um, and there are different reasons for that. Some of it is cultural. I think that's less and less of an issue, honestly, at the moment. Um, I think there's a new breed of, of or generation of entrepreneurs. Um, I don't mean that they're necessarily young. There's people who became entrepreneurs in the last 10 years who can see the, you know, who can see how big things can be. Um, but the other reason is the lack of sort of late stage capital. I mean, you know, we do growth investing, but there aren't that many late stage VC firms in Europe. Um, and as a result, if you're sat there and you need, you know, 50 or $100 million to go from the sort of 350, $500 million stage to the multi-billion dollar stage, you know, you don't have as many options as you probably need. Um, and at that point, if it's hard to raise money, if for some reason you can't attract US capital or Asian capital, at that point, you can see why a founder might say, you know what, maybe I should just exit. I don't want to hit the wall. So um, it's sad and we need to fix that. But there's a lot of people trying to fix that problem. And I think it's a it's a known problem and it's one that it's in a lot of people's interest to fix it. It's just going to take time. Brilliant. That, in fact, I appreciate that reply. Now, I'm going to go back a little bit, if I may, because I missed out a really important part of your journey here. And that's going back to 2005, when shortly after leaving HP Auto Autonomy, you started what was essentially, I've got it described here as a toolbar for web search specializing in video. And you called the company Blinks. But within, well, less than two years of, of starting the company, you'd attracted the attention of Microsoft, um, Saranga. I don't know how you do these things. Um, and they wanted to jump on, jump on board and utilize the technology within Blinks. And you had a relationship and, and uh, an investment from them using your technology. How did you do that within two years? Because that's what must inspire a lot of technology companies and entrepreneurs that are attracted to you and what you've done historically. Yeah, so the, the story behind Blinks is that it started off as a project within autonomy. Um, so when I was still there, um, we would work on side projects, like in many tech companies, and one of the side projects we worked on ended up becoming Blinks. Um, we were looking at a whole bunch of different applications for search, but in the consumer domain. So historically, Autonomy had always been a very enterprise-focused company, selling software to other businesses. Uh, and we sort of said, well, could you take some of this tech and apply it to normal people instead, and what would that look like? Um, and that led to lots of interesting ideas. It led to ultimately the spinning out of that team from autonomy into its own company. And that's what became Blinks. So to be fair, the technology took a lot longer than just two years to build. Um, it was already standing on the shoulders of autonomy's, you know, giants, as it were. But also we'd had some time at autonomy to sort of work on it. Um, the reason why I think we got a lot of attention and in those early years, we signed up, um, you know, Microsoft, but we also signed up uh, Yahoo and um uh, AOL, who were a big search player at the time, uh, Ask Jeeves, another big search player at the time. We basically those, had yeah, one, yeah, exactly, the butler. Um, we had everyone who um, was really a large search, except for Google. That was the only one we'd never, we never got. Um, and the reason we got them was because at that point, online video was exploding. So this was the very beginning of, you know, what now seems obvious, but at that time it was quite hard to stream video. And so sites like YouTube and iPlayer and Hulu were just getting started. Um, and Hulu is the, the predecessor really to things like Disney Plus and Amazon Prime Video and so on. Um, and anyway, um, it, there was a real problem around searching this content. There was a lot of content. It was exploding everywhere, but you couldn't find what you wanted to watch very easily. And so we built a very specialist search engine that could do that. 
And for everybody who was big in search, they needed to be able to offer that to their end users, but they had no way of technically building it themselves, certainly not quickly and, and sort of efficiently. And so we were able to, to do deals there. And, 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 you know, we had a number of conversations with some of these companies to sell the whole company. Um, and I think we could have easily sold it for about $200 million at that point. In fact, one of our competitors sold their company for about 150, I think at the time to AOL. Um, but we really felt like we wanted to go for it. And so we, you know, stuck to our, to our original plan to be an independent business um, and ultimately signed them all up as partners, made revenue from it and used that to build a larger and larger company. Brilliant. I, I, I love the fact that you decided to just not necessarily go it alone, but go the way of growth and steady, steady growth. Um, so you, you're the founder of Blinks. You, you stayed with the company until 2012 and which stage it got bought out. That's got to be your, you know, greatest success. Do you want to share that with us, that journey from taking it from, you know, part of autonomy? You went through the IPO process as well. You listed it and then you sold it. Can you share some of that journey with us? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, it was a long journey, right? I mean, in 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 so actually the company was merged in the end. So it, it kept going. And so actually I stayed on the board for another few years. So all in all, my Blinks journey was over 10 years. Um and you know, most of it as CEO, um, but a chunk of it as a as as just as the as a, as a board member rather than the CEO. Um, it, look, it was an amazing journey. And I think when I look, reflect on it now, <clears throat> you know, it, it just gave me, <clears throat> it was one of those things where you just learn a lot in an incredibly short, intense period of time. There are downsides to that. It's incredibly painful. You can only learn that much by making a lot of mistakes and seeing a lot of things go wrong, some of which you've caused, some of which other people have caused. Um, and so there were many, many moments that were moments of utter despair, frankly. Um, and I went through definitely the hardest points of my life in that in that journey um and there were many times when i really thought i couldn't keep going um and we couldn't keep going um and and that, that sucked right i mean it was very hard to have a to have a holiday in that 10 years without you know constantly thinking about what was going on with the company it was very hard to um get through any year without having these moments where it really felt like um things could really topple um especially in an area like video search which was of such strategic interest to so many big companies so we were always slave to google saying something or microsoft doing something and even if these things didn't have an immediate impact everyone would assume they would and it would affect your overall business or your share price if you were public and so on on the other hand you know the the advantage the upsides of that are you know when you did achieve things i think it made them feel all the more special i mean as a team wasn't just me as a team of us you know we, we went through this journey together and when we did succeed despite all these negative odds um it felt absolutely amazing and and there are moments like when we first went public the moment when we first went through a billion dollar valuation um you know the moments when we sold signed certain particular customers that just felt really amazing um absolutely amazing um and so those achievements i think are some of the proudest achievements of my life as well so it's a weird mix right you have your lowest of lows but your highest of highs um, and then for me, like looking at it longer term, career wise, what it really did was just put me through an incredible school of everything you can learn and everything you need to do. And, and that's the beauty of it from the point of view of my current job. Right. I mean, today, you know, the first half of my job is finding and investing in great companies. The second half of my job is helping those companies grow. Um, and the good news is I wouldn't have been through everything that those companies are going to go through, but I've been through many similar things. And so. I can hopefully sit there on the board and, you know, with the teams and empathize, first of all, and, you know, kind of share the pain that they're in at any given moment in time, but also come up with ideas and be a sounding board for those things. And that, I think, 
yeah, it may have been painful to learn those lessons, but it's valuable that I learned them. Brilliant. No, thank you for that plan. I want to talk about balance a bit later on, if I may. Um, but I think it's very important to touch on that because as an entrepreneur, um, you you know, and founders and CEOs of businesses are juggling so many tasks and responsibilities that we, we need to be mindful that we look after ourselves as well. So I'll be talking about that a bit later. I want to talk now a little bit about, um, well, a lot about boulders and capital. Um, but I want to talk first and ask you if you if you'd be so kind, because our global investing matters audience encompasses private investors, professional investors, institutional investors, ultra high net worth individuals, fund managers, etc. What is your definition, Saranga, of a venture capitalist and what does it encompass? I want to start there to give somebody a bit of an overview as to what it what it entails. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it means different things to different people. But for me, I, I refer to what I call the classic Silicon Valley venture capital model. Um, and that is institutional investors. So we're professionals who raise capital from um, external institutional investors who are limited partners, who invest in a close end fund that then goes and invests in technology driven businesses. So either fundamental technology or a company that's using technology to sort of drive uh, you know, faster than usual growth level. And you do that at a very early stage, you acquire minority stakes, and then you hold those stakes for a very long period of time, seven, eight, nine, ten years. And in that time, you're hopefully instrumental in helping that company exploit that technology opportunity to build a very large business over a relatively short period of time. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, because of the nature of when we're investing and the kinds of things we're investing in, the reality is the failure rate is very, very high. So unlike many other types of investing, you know, we can expect 25 to 30 percent of the companies we invest in to go to zero. And that's no one's fault. The founders had a brilliant idea. We loved it for all the right reasons. It just didn't work. Um, but the hope is that if you look at the remaining two thirds that do make it or the remaining three quarters that do make it, you know, some will be a, a reasonable success. And that's absolutely fine. And that's great. But one or two will be outlier outlier successes. Um, and it's those companies that then deliver the sort of outsized returns that people expect from our sector. Brilliant. We're going to touch on some of the outliers as well later on. Now, Saranga, you are a general partner at one of Europe's largest venture capital firms, which is, as we've said, Bolton Capital. Um, what is the business's philosophy? And please, can you give us a global viewpoint, overview of the sheer size and scale of Bolton? and the tech ecosystem it, it works in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so look, um, we, uh, like I said earlier, uh, you know, venture capital firm based in London, um, making pan-European investments. Our key um, driving belief is that the best way to change the world is to start a company. Um, and really everything we do comes from that quite simple statement. Um, we think that, you know, what gets, us excited, the reason that, you know, we get out of bed every day and go to work is that we think we're living in a sort of unique moment in time with regard to the ability of information technology, so stuff to do with computers, being able to really change the direction and the pace of human development in all kinds of ways, whether it's at home, whether it's at work, whether it's in our families or whatever else. When you have that kind of opportunity, the best way to have some kind of impact or change on the world that you think is important is to do it using a company that has at the heart of it some of that technology. Um, and our job is to find those people who are making those businesses and making those companies 
help them by providing capital, but also help them with the really complicated, long, often painful journey that I described earlier of actually achieving that. Uh, and in, in return for it, of course, you know, enjoying the financial returns that come from being part of, you know, being in that kind of investment journey. Um, so that's the heart of what we do. Um, the world we live in is, I guess, you know, private, the private technology uh, industry in, in Europe. Um, there are many different measures of that, but basically there are somewhere between five and 6,000 new European technology companies started every year. Um, as I said before, many of them don't really get very far. Um, but every year, there are somewhere between five and 20 that become multi-billion dollar outcomes eventually. Um, you know, Europe has produced iconic companies like UiPath, like Revolut, uh, like um, uh, uh, Spotify, and so on. Um, and, you know, our job is to find a few of those every year or every two, three years and invest in them. Um, that's the essence of what we do. Um, the interesting thing about our industry that I think makes it quite different from a lot of others is that we are very hands-on as investors. So on the one hand, we are absolutely a financial services firm. We're regulated that way and we make financial investments on behalf of our own investors. But because of the nature of what we're investing in, unlike say being a public market investor, we can't just buy shares and then and then sit back uh, and just look at the, how the company is doing and make decisions based on that. We sort of have to get involved. And, and that's what we do. We sit on the boards. We're involved much, much more than that every day, every week, if we have to be. Um, and our firms have these large you know, platform teams that help in lots of different ways with the marketing and the talent requirements, the legal and the financial requirements of these companies. Um, so it's a very sort of hands-on operational job. In some ways, it's quite entrepreneurial. But on the other hand, it's also very much a financial investing job as well. Brilliant. Thank, thank you. Now, I wanted to ask you this question because, of course, you haven't, you haven't touched on it. Because Balderton Capital have actually got a unique equal partnership structure. And I, I think that's extremely beneficial for the portfolio companies. Please, can you expand on that for us, please? Yeah. So, you know, in the end, um, the way that a lot of venture capital firms are set up is as partnerships. Um, you know, a small number of people who essentially own the firm and who ultimately decide what investments to make. Um, for lots of historical reasons, many of those partnerships are unequal. So, you know, the person who started the firm will probably be the more senior partner. They might own more of the firm. They will get more of the profits. They might have a bigger say in the decisions. We decided when we were founded, and this is before my time, that we were going to have this concept of an equal partnership, where essentially when you become a partner at Balderton, you're an equal partner, you're an equal owner in the business. Um, if companies do well and we make profits from that, that profit is shared evenly, regardless of whether you are the one who spotted that particular company or spent time with them. Um, and then also from a decision-making process, we have votes. And every time we vote, every vote is equal. No one has a bigger say or a higher say than anybody else. Um, we really like this. It means that um, we're able to have a very sort of diverse set of people in that partnership and they can all have an equal voice. And it also means from the point of view of the companies and the founders that when we invest, you know, you might have spent a lot of time talking to me. I might be the person on your board, but actually all of my partners are equally incentivized for you to be a success. And so if for some reason you need Rana or you need Rob to help on those companies, then on your business, because they have a particular specialist network or piece of knowledge that, that I don't have, then you can always ask them. Um, they're going to want to give it to you as much as I would, because, you know, your success is as important to them as it is to me. That's, that's precisely the answer I was looking for. And that's the reason why I was asking you. I think because I think the beauty of it is, is that you have a, a variation of one, three, four or five different individuals that have got all different specialism, all different skills. And that entrepreneur, that founder can tap into Balderton 
wholly and not just not just Saranga. I think that's a, a beautiful um, way of going about it and supporting um, companies going forward. Now, I think we're going back to about November 2021 um, Saranga and Boulderton had their, one of the largest raises, if not the largest raise and transitioned a little bit or a lot actually from being a leading series A investor to multi-stage fund and um, giving it more firepower and stability. Now, for, for, for those that don't understand, please could you explain the nuances between pre-seed, seed, series A, and going further up into late stage, please? Yeah, absolutely. So as I've said a couple of times, you know, we're, we're backing these companies that start with, you know, one or two or three people. And if they're really successful, end up with thousands of people at the end uh, when they go public or, or are sold, perhaps. And so during that journey, you will probably raise money more than once. And in our little weird world of venture, we give names to each of those moments at which you raise money. And we call them rounds or series. Um, so the very first series is usually called pre-seed. Um, that's usually when you've just got some people together. They've got an idea. They haven't got anything else. Um, so it's, you know, at that point, they can only raise a very small amount of capital at a very low valuation, effectively. Obviously, <clears throat> how much they can raise and at what valuation will depend on who they are. Are they really compelling entrepreneurs for some reason? Uh, and what they're trying to build is what they're building so exciting and so interesting and so potentially valuable. Um, but nevertheless, that's that's the first stage. Then you have what's known as seed investment. Typically at that point, that team has been together for anywhere from six months to a year. They've built a first initial version of the product. They've got it out there. You can sort of see it in your hands and get a feel for it. But they haven't really got a lot of traction yet. They haven't really got it in many customers' hands. People aren't really using it properly yet. It's still a bit of a theory. It's just it's now instantiated in real life. Um, that takes you to series A, which usually happens about a year or two later. Um, at that point, you can probably raise, you know, if pre-seed was raising, you know, 50 to $200,000, series A is probably anywhere from three, uh, sorry, from four to maybe about $15 million at most. Um, at this point, you've got real traction. You've got people using your product or you've got customers paying for it. You might have a million or $2 million worth of revenue every year on a run rate basis going through, but you're still small, right? You're still 25, 30 people. There's <laughs> still a lot to prove. You're probably just in one market. You've probably just got one product. Um, and then you keep going, right? Series B, series C, and so on. Um, some companies will raise series E's or F's. Um, at some point, they get profitable, they don't need to keep raising money, or they go public and they start raising money on the public markets instead. Um, so just to go back to your initial question about how the firm changed, in the early days of Balderton's history, for the first you know, almost 20 years, we were primarily a seed and series A investor. So we only invested in those very early parts of the, the journey. And then what happened a few years ago was that we built a whole new team. We added two new partners, my partners, Rana and David, who joined the firm and they built a whole new offering to do growth stage investing. So that means series C, D, E and so on. So now we have capital to help you really almost whatever stage of the journey you're at um, while you're still a private tech company. Brilliant. And, and more scope to actually nurture companies across Europe as well. So it's absolutely fantastic. Now, you previously described um, Boulder, Boulderton Capital as a low-frequency, high-conviction investor that spends a lot of time dedicated to its portfolio companies. Without giving away the Boulderton secret formula, what are the successful investing traits and essential criteria that you're looking for in a, in a team, in an entrepreneur, or in a concept before you know, Boulderton are going to give that company a stamp of approval and, and back them with their hard-earned cash 
and give them for the financial and strategic support they need going forward? Yeah, I mean, we've done a lot of analysis on what we've done before, what's worked and what hasn't worked. Um, as I said, you can't get away from some level of risk, right? So you're going to make mistakes and you need to be okay with that. Um, but when you look at what has worked, generally, the companies that we've backed that have ended up doing really well are almost always in the same market that they were in to start off with. It sounds obvious, but some of these very early companies sometimes completely change what market they're in. But actually, the ones that do change rarely succeed. You know, usually there's a reason why they're in focus on a particular market, and that continues to be the market that matters. The second thing that tends to be static through the successful companies is the founding team. So maybe not everybody, but usually there's still one or two of the founders, the original people who started the business still there at the end. Um, and I think that's because <clears throat> those people have just a, such a singular focus on solving this problem. They have such a massive ownership about solving the problem and building the business that they, um, you know, they're very, very focused on that. And so they, they, they have a level of energy and kind of passion for it that's hard to hire from someone else. Um, <clears throat> interestingly, what changes a lot between the time when we invest and the outcome is the exact product that they're selling. So you might be in the same general market, but you might be solving quite a different problem, but it will be the same people. And so that's what we care about. We look at the market and we look at the people. We actually care less about exactly what you're building right now. We care a little bit less about exactly how many customers you have now or exactly how much revenue you have now. Those things are important. They tell us about what's working, what's not working. If things aren't working or are working, that tells us about how you react as a team and so on. But what we really do is spend time saying, look, is the general market these people are focused on actually massive? You know, is it one that we get excited about because of the sheer size of it and the fact that it feels like change is going to happen in the next 10 years? If the answer to that is yes, then we really turn to the team and say, look, is this a team we trust to navigate that reality? Because we know that what they're building now, despite what they think and say, is not what's going to make the most money in the end. They've got to be smart enough to realize when it's not working and they've got to be smart enough to change what they're doing and go through what's known as the pivot, you know, if necessary, which is where you change direction. Um, and if you believe in the team that way, then that's the kind of team we back. And, and the, the, you know, the nature of the personalities and the skills and the experiences that can give us confidence that these people could do that are actually quite different, right? Some people are very quiet, very intelligent, um, you know, real experts in their area. And that's why we think they can navigate it. Other people just have a lot of passion for the problem they're solving. They have so much energy that they will just run through walls um, and they have so much um, extrovert power that they can just convince everyone to turn to their cause. So the successes can be very different. Right? I mean, I always give the example of different, very successful founders. You know, if you were to compare, you know, Bill Gates and his personality to Steve Jobs and his personality, um, compare both of them to Larry Ellison and his personality or to the Google founders. You know, they're very, very different people. Every single one of them, Mark Zuckerberg, different again. Um, and they, they're all successful in very, very different ways. So it's not, there's no one type or, or whatever. Um, you know, we've had successes of every um, type of personality, every color, every gender, everything else. Um, it's about spending time with them early on and saying, is this someone who, for whatever reason, is going to really go for it and figure out this problem and really find something big? Uh, and when we get there, then we get very excited and we make one of those, uh, you know, high conviction, low frequency investments that I talked about. Brilliant. No, thank you for that full response. I really appreciate it. Now, please can you share with us, you've touched on a, a couple already, but I want you to go into a bit more de granular detail. Some of the notable and significant successes that Bolton have achieved so far. Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, 
I mean, there've been there've been many. Um, the, one of the very early companies that that uh, we invested in that really put us on the map was MySQL. Uh, you know, open source database company that um, today is still used by millions of of people worldwide and has sort of really changed the nature of the accessibility of database technology. Um, that was quickly followed up by a company called Ukes, um, which was a uh, e-commerce platform that still alive today. Uh, it bought uh, Preta Porter a few um, a, pre a few years ago, um, and it provides the sort of back end for a lot of high fashion brands. Milan based company um, and, and public in 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 Milan. Um, and you know other companies like Betfair and, and so on. But then more recently, in the more recent generation, um, some of our really big outcomes have been companies like Aircall, which is a large French software company uh, that provides telephony API, Contentful in Berlin, which is the world's largest um, so-called headless content management service company uh, um, based in Berlin, but now a global business. Um, Revolut, which many people have heard of, which is obviously a um, Neobank uh, that we were the, the first institutional investor in. Um, and then even more recently, companies like Zigo, um, you know, revolutionary company in the in the insurance tech space, uh, or a company like Dream Games, which is a, a gaming business based out of Turkey that has um, a game that is either one or two uh, in the gaming charts generally most weeks in the UK and the US. Um, so it's a very, very wide variety of companies, some consumer, some gaming, some deep tech, some software. Um, and also from lots of different countries, right? You know, Italy, the UK, Germany, Stockholm, uh, Sweden, and so on. Um, but um, it's been great to see. I mean, and, and, you know, the nice thing is that Europe seems to be continuing to be successful. Like over time, we get more and more of these companies all the time. Brilliant. Now you, you touched on, I'm going to go back to um, to MISO and you sold to Sun Microsystems, which going back then, was for a significant chunk of change, you know, one billion. So that's a, like you say, that put you on on, on the uh, um, Balderton on on the map. But you've got some fantastic companies. You mentioned Revolut, the fintech company. Um, that's that seems to be going from strength to strength. Um, and hopefully, um, depending on what happens with that, it will list in the UK. Um, I'm just putting a thumbs up there and hope, you know, because we need some really significant companies that are being raised and nurtured here to, to remain listed on here or, or stay private and just continue to grow yeah 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 i mean look i of course unfair for me to put pressure on one particular company but no, I, i'm only joking i'm only joking but but, but but you're right i mean it, you know i think um you know we you know the uk has always had if i just say the uk i mean the same is true of the rest of europe too to be honest but the uk has always had absolutely brilliant innovative science and technology and it still does today you know we still really punch above our weight uh, in many ways um and, um, you know, we do an increasingly good job of taking that technology and convert it in, into product and, and sort of early businesses. Um, and that's changed a lot from when I was, you know, graduating and when I was coming into the workforce. Um, but we need to then keep supporting them all the way through that journey. And, and right now we're a bit weaker as they get bigger. And certainly we're weak when they decide to go public. Um, and that's a shame because the second you start to lose them to investors abroad, then you know the 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 focus shifts. The management team ends up relocating, uh, and before you know it, you know a lot of the value is lost somewhere else, um, and that's a shame. So we need to we need to make that happen somehow. Yeah, it's important that you took it's an important point you made there about losing that talent pool when things get merged or taken away or moved out into different lo locations. Now I've, I need to raise this with you because I think it's a fantastic point you've made here, Saranga. And you touched on previously about the, you know, you're involved in the IPO process with Blinks. However, you've said 
Um, for entrepreneurs, an IPO is not a goal or exit or an endpoint. And I find that such a powerful and stimulating statement. Please, can you contextualize that for our listeners, please? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the reality is IPOs are, well, first of all, the, the, the hint is in the name, right? It's an initial public offering. It's just a start of something new. Um, it is just another funding round in many ways. So I talked earlier about seed and pre-seed and series A and B and C. Well, to me, IPO is just series IPO um, or, or series public, where you suddenly take the company public. Um, it is a great moment in time to reflect on what's been achieved because the um, bar to entry to be a public company is so high. You have to have a business of a certain scale, certain level of success. Um, and certainly one that can withstand a lot of, you know, rigorous challenge and analysis and audit. Um, so it's a really amazing moment to be as a, as a, as a founding team or as, a, as an executive, because you are or even just an employee, you're a part of a company that's got that big and it's got that important. Um, but really, the primary purpose of an IPO is to raise a bunch more capital to grow yet more, right? Because you've got some belief that you can build something even bigger. Um, and in that sense, it's just the beginning of a journey. Um, so, um, you know, uh, many of the companies that we've invested in, uh, the company that I founded, company that some of my other partners have founded, um, you know, stayed public for many, many years and had many interesting things happen post going public, uh, including being worth a lot more in the end than they were when they first went public. So in that sense, it's just just another day in, in the life. Um, obviously, for different people, different moments of the exit. You know, we have founders who leave very early on for one reason or another. And we have other founders who leave at the IPO or just before it. And then we have others who stay with the company for many, many years. Um, so it's completely up to them. One of our other portfolio companies that's been in the news a bit recently is the Hub Group up in Manchester. Um, and that's a great example of one where the founder is, you know, I mean, this is what Matt does. I mean, I don't think he's ever going to leave that company while it's still there, you know, he and he's He's, he's built it in his uh, image and with his vision and his energy from from day one. And, you know, um, for him, the IPO was just another step, really, in, in, in that journey. Um, so it depends a lot on the individual. Um, and I just always, when I talk to or work with CEOs who are going through that change, I just sort of always say, look, you just need to know that it doesn't have to be the end. And you, know, you, should, you should think about it, you know, however is right for you and for the company and decide what you want to do with that. Thank you for that. Now, Saranga, the US, the UK, Europe, and potentially the whole global tech ecosystem are currently experiencing one of their biggest financial crunch slash headaches, if you want to call it that way, um, in decades due to the- Definitely, definitely a migraine, more than a headache. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know where I was going with this. Yeah. Um, Silicon Valley bank collapse. As yeah. a thought leader in the tech space, what, what, what has been the impact you've seen in the tech ecosystem and the consequence of this banking failure? Yeah, I mean, um, Silicon Valley Bank actually, in many ways, I think is a bit of a distraction. So, I mean, it, it's it's very sad that it's happened. Uh, it could have been disastrous, obviously, but the reality is the US and the UK government authorities moved incredibly quickly and did a fantastic job of managing the risk and the downside challenge there. Uh, which is, you know, all credit to them. They did an amazing job and I'm really impressed. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's easy and fashionable to complain about government and people, a lot of people do all the time. Many of us do, I'm sure, certainly at home over the over the table. But um, every now and again, they do things that make you remember why they're there, right? And, 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 and how well they can work. And that was a great example of that sort of thing. And um, so in that sense, I think the Silicon Valley Bank issue itself is not a major issue. I think the problem with Silicon Valley Bank is that it's exposed 
a general concern level around banks in general, uh, not every bank, but obviously certain banks that look more risky than others. And we will see that play out over the next few weeks. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, Credit Suisse is the, is the last one that has serious issues, um, but we don't know. Um, <clears throat> and if enough of those have challenges or fall, then obviously you could trigger um, something a bit like what happened in 2008 and 2009. And that would be a big fear because that, you know, even, even though it's a banking problem, it would affect everybody and everything. Um, the bigger issue, I think, has been the sort of tech downturn, if you want to call it that, of 2022. Um, and that's sort of good and bad. I think that actually, if you look at what happened, you know, interest rates started to rise again, that made capital more expensive. That meant that the idea of, you know, using a lot of capital in these high growth companies, which had a chance of growing, suddenly you know, less interesting, right? I mean, it's definitely something you still can grow money faster in, in, in successful startups than you can anywhere else. But but the, the risk part of that has raised. Um, that obviously means that multiples come down. That means that valuations come down. I don't think that any of that is necessarily a terrible thing. Um, the reality is that multiples, if you look at them now in the public markets, I don't think they've overcorrected. You know, many of them are actually at sort of historic-ish levels. You know, every now and again, there's a bad month or a good month. But I think that's normal. I think you always get this reversion to mean over time. Um, I'm sure we'll have, you know, better times in the future. I'm sure we'll have worse times in the future. Um, and actually, you know, in our experience, and certainly in my experience personally, I was a CEO during the last, uh, you know, during the 08, 09 downturn. Um, if you survive that kind of period as a company, you end up being more resilient. You know, you're a much healthier business in the end, really. Um, so so that's kind of what we're at and where we're in. And, and I think it's hard because, you know, we've had a bull market for so long that there's a whole generation of companies that really have never lived through a difficult period. Um, so adjusting expectations, adjusting kind of what matters and what you focus on and what you work on is, is just hard. Uh, organizations have to shift their focus from one thing to another, or at least change it slightly. Um, that's just difficult to do. Even if everyone kind of gets it, it's just difficult to change. You know, there's a level of inertia in any organization. Um, and it's also really hard for certain specific types of companies, right? So if you're a, if you're a software business and you're medium-sized um, <clears throat> and you hit a point where you think, oh, I can't raise money at the valuation that I thought I could, that's okay. If you've got enough cash, you can probably slow growth a little bit um, and take a little bit of money out of marketing and advertising and slowly drift towards profitability and you'll be fine. You'll be able to keep most of your team and pay for them. And you know, you might be a slightly slower growing business, but you're still a healthy business. If you are a deep tech company, for example, that's working on incredible technical work that maybe is achieving a lot of incredible technical breakthroughs, but simply is too far from revenue, then there's no way for you to be able to generate enough money to be able to pay for your expenses. And so you have to keep raising money. And so for companies like that, this sort of market is really tough, right? Because suddenly the number of people who are willing, willing to write those checks uh, is, is just a smaller number and it's shrunk. And so um, I do worry about certain sectors like deep tech, um, but others I think will be fine. And actually, you know, many of those companies will be better for it. Mm. With saying that, regarding the deep tech and also other um, areas of technology in this downturn and previous downturns, do you often see more consolidations then of companies actually merging together, joining together, going together and, you know, forming collaborations? Yeah, we do. I mean, both people just selling the business, right, to something much larger. Um, so we've had a number of exits to large tech companies over the last 12 months. Um and then you also get absolutely mergers. And, and, you know, if you've got a market where there are maybe three or four startups, all highly competitive, 
sometimes it makes more sense to be part of one um, and, you know, really sort of focus efforts. So we'll see a lot of that. I think a lot of it didn't happen last year because it takes time for these kind of downturns to wash through, right? A lot of companies had raised money in 2021. They had plenty of cash. They didn't really have to do anything in 22. I think 23 will still be a tough year. Um, certainly all the signs are pointing that way right now. If that's the case, more of them will have to start to think seriously about what happens next. Um, so I think we will see mergers and acquisitions. Um, we'll see some shutdowns and so on. Um, and look, these are all healthy, normal things, right? Um, and I think the key is to do it the right way, to treat employees and founders with respect, make sure that where you can, you know, investors are able to benefit from what they can benefit from and so on and so forth. Um, that's just the nature of the game. Indeed it is. And now I'm going to ask you quite a personal question now regarding the challenges faced by, you know, tech entrepreneurs and life in general. What has been your biggest main lesson that you've learned so far from your journey from being a software engineer at, um, you know, doing your MA at Cambridge all the way through now as a, a partner, general partner at Balderton, Saranga? That's a really hard question. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those ones that you wish you could sort of think of a bit, think for a bit longer to sort of figure it out. Um, look, I think, <clears throat> I think what I've found is that um, in the end, I, I'm motivated by doing things that interest me. Um, if I have a job to do that I'm not that interested in, then, you know, I, for a while I can keep doing it because I know it's the right thing to do. Um, you know, we all have chores that we know we need to do, but I won't do as good a job of it as I could do. Um, and I'll do it as quickly as I can. And if I can get out of it, I'll get out of it. Um, and for me, at least, life is sort of wasted if you do that with your job. The reality of most of us is that most of us will spend a big, pretty big chunk of our lives in work of one sort or another. Um, so really, if you can, I think you owe it to yourself to find something that you're genuinely excited about. It doesn't mean you will always be excited about it. As I said earlier, you know, many of the most exciting things involve some gut-wrenching moments. Um, if you didn't care, then it, you know, then you would, it wouldn't hurt, right? It hurts because you care. That's kind of, th th these things come together. Um, but if you can find things like that, then I think it's just very rewarding. And and really the interesting thing about that, the nature of that rewarding is that it's not just financially rewarding, which is important, obviously, but also it's rewarding because of a sense of achievement. And even if, you know, the financial outcome isn't great, even if the final outcome isn't great, if you've learned stuff and you've enjoyed the journey and you've done it with people that you like and respect and care for, then you'll still look back fondly on those times. Um, you know, in the industry that I'm in, many things go wrong. In fact, most companies, you know, a lot of companies go wrong. Um, but, you know, we're still friends with most of the founders whose companies didn't work out. Um, and I still love bumping into them and having a beer with them and remembering the good times and the bad times, um, because we all learn so much from the journey that we wouldn't take it away for anything. So, I think try to find something like that that really is something that energizes you. Um, because again, you're going to spend a lot of time working. You might as well do it in something that you care about. Indeed. And you touched on about giving and having more than just financial reward here. And what 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 resonates with me regarding what you've done historically and continue to do is your passion for giving back, your passionate advocate for continual learning. And you've visited lots and lots of schools and universities and spoken to many students in many educational environments. Have you noticed over the years, and I'm asking this question, um, Saranga, because of your board, you're a board member of Diversity VC. Yeah. Have you noticed over the years an increase in female and black technologists and, and other ethnic minorities within the space or since you've been in the space yourself? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, it, it, so two things. First of all, the number of people who are interested in starting a company at all has exploded, right? So, so of all types. 
Um, so that's great. I mean, the fact that more and more people want to be entrepreneurs or try it for part of their life. And I don't mean necessarily build, you know, billion dollar companies, technology companies. It, it, you can be lots, there are lots of different kinds of entrepreneurship, right? And the fact that I think people are open to that is exciting. Um, and then, yes, as part of that, there's clearly been a trend towards more diversity in that story. Um, interestingly, there are groups of people who've always been quite entrepreneurial. Women have often been quite entrepreneurial because they haven't always been allowed to do jobs they wanted to do, quite frankly. Um, so there's, there is a history of female entrepreneurs that is often forgotten and hidden and kind of ignored. But actually, there are a lot of women who've done small things in their spare time at home, around family and so on, because that was the only way they could get a job. Equally, people of colour um, and immigrants of all types have also often been business people, because again, if you're coming into a new place and you don't have the sort of social capital to be able to get a great professional job, for example, then one way of, of making ends meet is to be a business person. Um, you know, you see this classic immigrant um, curve where people turn up on the shores of Britain, they forget their background and, you know, do something in the, in business because that's the best way for them to make money, but they immediately pay for their kids to, you know, go to a great school and, and get a great education and then hopefully become professionals and become established. And so, so I, funnily enough, there's a history of all of that anyway, but we're seeing more and more of it in particularly my area, the sort of high tech, high value entrepreneurship. Um, but it's not enough, right? I mean, still today, you know, um, it's a it's a dismal percentage of people, of companies are founded by women and even more dismal percentage of them that are funded by institutional firms like mine. Um, same with people of colour, you know, we're underrepresented across the board. And so um, there's a lot more work to do. It's definitely got a lot better, um, which I think is reason for hope. You know, it's important not to be too pessimistic and too negative, in my opinion, on these things. But at the same time, we can't we can't stop now. There's a lot more work to do on it, unfortunately. Brilliant. Thank you for that reply. Now, you, you, you touched on the, the charitable side of it, but I want to focus now and drill down on what your charitable causes are, what's your, what you're passionate about supporting, and what is it that you've been doing in the in the community or elsewhere for charities going and going forward? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, look, my, my wife and I do a number of charitable things, most of which uh, we do fairly anonymously. Um, but the... I think for us, uh, the two key things that we care about, uh, the two key words are local and children. Um, so, you know, I think children are the future uh, of all of our, for all of us. And so giving as many children as possible, as many opportunities as possible is is so important, in my opinion. Um, and we think local is really important. It's, it's always very easy to look from afar and sort of, um, you know, cast judgment on others. Um, my wife and I have both had very international lives and Part of that has involved living in other countries and in different places. And you realize that your perspective changes when you when you when you change position and when you move to a new place. Um, and so rather than, you know, sort of try to solve problems a long way away, we sort of very much look around us and say, well, what's happening in our town that could be better? Um, and especially if it's to do with children, that's kind of what we support. Um, and we're huge believers in that. And we're huge believers in that across the board. Right. So, you know, I think, um, again, we're both massive benefactors from the state education system in the UK. Uh, we both went to state school throughout. We went to a state funded university um, and we've both been able to have amazing careers as a result of all of that. So keeping those sorts of paths open and you know, awakening the optimism and the ambition in every child, not necessarily to do what I did or what she did, but whatever they want to do is critical. Um, and anything that goes in the other direction of that, I think is a missed opportunity. Really sad for that individual person, of course, but also really sad for the country. I mean, if you're patriotic, you should want every person in this country to do as well as possible because that's how we all get ahead in the end. 
Um, so that's the sort of thing that we we care about a lot. Brilliant. I love that reply. Thank you ever so much. Now, we touched on it earlier, and I'm, I'm going back to it now. You said it, you mentioned it earlier, and I think it's extremely important here because you're, you're a very busy man, busy family, um, got many commitments and responsibilities. Please, can you share with us, it's quite an important thing to talk about here now, how you manage to find balance in your life, work, health, family, and your personal well-being. What's your secret, Saranga? I don't have a secret, um, but what I will say is I think balance is really, really important. Um, I've definitely lived parts of my life completely imbalanced, um, especially when I was a CEO. So I understand how it can happen and why it can happen. Um, and it was bad, you know? I mean, on the one hand, it wasn't great from a family point of view. And secondly, I was lucky, I was relatively young. So family was less of a feature of my life at the time, but it wasn't good. Um, and also from a health point of view, you know, I was in terrible shape uh, when I was a CEO um, and, you know, stopping being CEO allowed me to get into much better shape and be a much healthier person. And also, luckily, my family came along around that same time. And so I've been able to spend a lot more time with them, you know, uh, than I would have been had I still been doing the job that I was doing before, the way I was doing it before. I think it's really short sighted. Um, in the end, you can't give 110 percent, which is the sort of thing a lot of people will say to you. Because if you give 110%, that means you're giving more than you have, which means that you're fundamentally deteriorating, right? And if you do that for long enough, there won't be any of you left in the end. Um, it's a sort of simple truth of maths. So, you know, I think you have to accept that your job is to do what you can with what you have, um, and that actually having balance allows you to do it for longer and in a more sustainable, more um, long-term way. And particularly when it comes to things like, you know, investing in technology companies like I do or building technology companies like the founders we back to, it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. Um, so it's completely completely counterproductive to try to sort of kill yourself for a year or two because you, you have to be there for year three and four and five and six and 10 and 12 as well. Um, so if you burn out, you're not really helping yourself at all anyway. Um, there's a real culture of that in some parts of the tech industry. And I think it's a bit immature and a bit old fashioned. Um, I think that increasingly people are realizing that this need for balance um, doesn't mean you don't work hard. It <clears throat> doesn't mean that balance, um, you know, means that you, you, you know, you only work half the time or whatever. Um, and it doesn't mean that there aren't periods where you work, you know, harder than you probably should. It just means that you accept and realize that the psychology and the physical reality of, of this job is a very long-term one. And you've got to make sure you're in a shape to be able to do it over that long-term. Um, I look a lot at other industries on this. I mean, I think, you know, sport is a really fascinating case. Professional sports people do not constantly run as fast as they can all the time. They're very, very smart about understanding how to run their season, how to time when they have to perform. You know, as a footballer, you need to be perfect for those 90 minutes, you know, and you have to do a lot of things, including nothing in between those 90 minute stints in order to be in position to do that. Um, again, tech CEOs are generally not very good at thinking that way. Um, so as a firm, we're working quite hard on that. You know, we do it a lot of it's behind the scenes. But when we invest in companies, we try to work with people to figure out how we can make sure that you know they can be in charge of this company for a long time and not just uh, you know sprint really well for a couple of years and then have to give it up. Brilliant. Thank you for that response. Now going going back to to Boulders and Capital and to yourself, um, what are your current thoughts and views regarding current trends, including generative AI, which seems to be getting a lot of press? Uh, currently what are your thoughts on on those um fascinating sort of developments we've got yeah i mean we do a lot of research on thematic areas and trends um but we don't invest based on them so what we do really is you know i would describe us as sort of founder centric 
investors. Um, we look for fantastic teams working in interesting areas. So going back to what I said before, generative AI potentially opens up a huge new market of tasks that are done by humans today that could perhaps be done by computers or at least enhanced or, or optimized by, by computers. Um, that creates a lot of value because today those tasks are often boring, often repetitive and very expensive to do manually. Um, and that's a huge market opportunity. And then what we look for beyond that is really people who we think can really navigate that. And generative AI is a great example of this. I think no one really knows where the value is going to be captured. Is it going to be in the platforms? Is it going to be in the applications? We all have theories and I have one, but really, I mean, I don't think any of those theories are worth much yet. We have to wait and see how it happens. So what you want to do is back founders who you think understand the technology, understand the direction it's going in, and also have a kind of level of commercial mouse and, and, and resilience really to be able to figure that out, you know, catch the tiger by its tail, hold on to it while it kind of twists and turns. And once it stopped moving, figure out quickly how to build the right business at that point in time. I love that analogy. <laughs> Thank you for that. Because um, we've seen the likes of um, Google, to name but two, and um, Adobe going all into that sort of space. And um, it's, it's got, it looks absolutely huge. And I think, like you say, there's going to be lots of tasks that are going to be able to be done by computers going forward. Now, I've got one final fun question, unless there's anything that I've not covered here that you'd love to share before I share my question with you, Saranga. No, you've been very thorough, Peter. Thank you very much. Now, this is a fun question, so I'll, I'll let you just go with the flow with this one. Saranga, given all of your vast business, leadership, venture capital and investing experiences you've attained since starting out as a software engineer in 1996, if a book was written about your life up to this point today, what are the first words that spring to mind as an appropriate title for said book to encapsulate your experiences and journey to this point today and why? <laughs> um, <laughs> that's okay. First words that spring to mind are uh, for a title is it worked out well, dot, 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 in the end. <laughs> okay. Expand. Yeah. I mean, just because I think I'm very happy with, you know, today, looking back at all the things I've been able to be part of, it's been a lot of fun. I've met a lot of amazing people. It's been inspiring. And as I said, very instructive. You know, I've, I've learned a lot from, from my journey. Um, but there have been many, many times, you know, um, throughout that journey where it has felt like it was all about to go completely wrong. Um, and, um, you know, um, that's the sort of thing I would, if I could go back in time, I'd remind myself at some of those moments and say, look, don't worry, it's looking bad right now, but it'll be, it'll end well, it'll end well. Um, and I think that a lot of life is like that, you know, and you sort of have to balance, I think, on the one hand, genuine concern and fear, because those are good things, they, they you know, they drive you, right? Um, um, but at the same time, you know, know that if you surround yourself with the right people, if you try your best, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, you know, it'll work out, you know, it'll work out one way or another. So I don't know, that's my, that's my first stab at it. <laughs> That's a brilliant stab at it. That's a wonderful reply. And I think it's about the, the beauty of you, Saranga, and I've read and I've looked at you and all, all, all over the place. Historically, you're, you're a man built on the foundations of humility. You know, so I think you've done extremely well. I think there's lots more you're going to do. I've not touched on the questions of the fact that you've got lots of patents still haven't been used in there, out there somewhere. So I know there's going to be a lot more coming from you. But Saranga... Transatalake, general partner of Balderton Capital. It's been absolutely fantastic to have you on this Investing Matters podcast. Thank you for sharing your insights, knowledge and wisdom um, with our global audience. And uh, it's been a delight speaking with you, sir. Take care and God bless.
Thank you, Peter. It's been a real pleasure. Really, really enjoyed the hour. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, sir. See ya. Thank you for taking the time to listen to Investing Matters. Be sure to check out the London Southeast website for free tools and info to research your next investment. You can also join in the conversation on our social media channels. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more content, including our CEO interviews. Catch you next time.